0: The sun was beginning to rise over the Bavarian Alps as the long column of cars left Munich and drove off into the countryside. A passenger in one of those cars was the Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, and he was feeling sick. Not the kind of sick you're thinking of, but the kind of sick you get when your mind has exhausted your body, pounding your physical strength again and again, nauseously, reminding you of something that you need to do when you don't want to do it. He was already sleeping less and less, but after the last few days, sleep wasn't really an option. His forehead was leaning against the car window, and he looked out, watching the trees thicken as they passed by, letting his mind wander back to the old days, when all of this seemed so far away. Their destination was a small vacation village at the foot of the Alps, just south of Munich. Hitler had arranged for a special meeting between himself and the leadership of his own private army, the S.A. The purpose of the meeting was to settle the growing tensions in their relationship. Tensions that had become so serious that they threatened to end Hitler's chancellorship. The matter needed to be... Resolved. The SA was led by a man named Ernst Röhm. You remember Ernst Röhm. He was the man who built the SA from the ground up. The man that Hitler had lured back from political exile after the failed Beer Hall coup and had been fighting communists in the streets of Berlin night after night. Röhm was a veteran of the war. He was awarded the Iron Cross and rose to the rank of captain. During one battle, he was shot in the face and carried a scar over his eye and cheek for the rest of his life. He was a ruthless commander that seemed to revel in the chaos and violence that his men produced. He was also Hitler's closest friend. Rom had been with Hitler since the beginning. He was arrested with Hitler, sat in jail with him when their one-night rebellion collapsed. They stood trial together, they were sentenced together. But it wasn't just their history, they were close. Rahm seemed to be the only man in Germany who could openly criticize Hitler to his face. In fact, he was the only person in Hitler's entourage who called him by his first name, Adolf. Like I said, they were close. Hitler's column of cars entered the small mountain village, and the caravans snaked through the narrow, winding streets, until they at last approached the Hanselbauer Hotel, where the meeting was scheduled to take place. The charming resort hotel, with its large roof, white and brown facade, and wraparound porch, was tucked neatly in between the fields of green and a picturesque mountain lake. It was beautiful. The hotel rooms were accessible from the outside, with doors lining every floor of the building. The cars pulled into the courtyard of the hotel and shut off their engines. Then it was quiet. An officer got out of a car, opened Hitler's car door, and the Chancellor of Germany stepped out. He took a deep breath of the crisp morning air, Then he muttered something to the officer who was with him. The officer then gave the order for his men to take their positions. Black-coated officers emerged from the caravan of cars, ran up the steps of the hotel, and began to line the porches of every floor. A squad of men, now in front of each hotel room door, where Rome and every senior SA officer were still sound asleep inside. There, the black-coated officers stood, waiting for the order. Diddler raised his hand, and for a moment, he hesitated. But then he dropped his hand down. All at once, the black-coated officers kicked in the doors and stormed into the hotel rooms, being met with startled, groggy shouts. The SA officers, awoken completely by surprise, were now being pulled out of their beds, pushed out of their rooms at gunpoint. One of the SA leaders was found in his bed with another man. He and his companion got special attention from the black-coated officers and were dragged out of their room, screaming and pleading as they were pulled down the stairs. Their voices echoed far through the thin mountain air. They were brought to the center of the courtyard, their desperate pleas being met with cold silence. They were then forced to kneel down on the ground and with no words, shot in the head. Hitler walked past the bodies and climbed the steps of the hotel towards the room of his old friend of 14 years. The man who had stood with him from the very beginning, still sitting on his bed, half awake, shaking his head. He couldn't believe it. But then again, he could. Hitler entered the room alone and closed the door behind him. I'm Michael Trapani, and this is How to Start a War, a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. While the characters we follow are at the center of this story, they are not the heroes. This story is about what happens when good people do nothing to stop the worst people on Earth, while they still can. Let's continue. Chapter 3. Germany. We're going back to where we left off, a year and a half before Hitler's visit to the Hanselbauer Hotel, only a few weeks after he was named Chancellor. On this night, Hitler was sitting in the back seat of another car, this one careening down the city streets of Berlin at 60 miles an hour. It was after 9 o'clock at night, and from the inside of the car, the lampposts along the street zoomed past it as it kicked it up to 65. Sitting in the car with Hitler was his propaganda guru, Josef Goebbels. The two men had just finished eating dinner when Goebbels got the frantic phone call with the shocking news. At first, Goebbels didn't believe it. He was told something on the phone that seemed so ridiculous that it didn't seem possible. He just said, Call me back when you know for sure. Then he hung up the phone, keeping the wild story to himself. When the phone rang again, confirming the shocking news of the first call, he stood up and shouted for a car to take them to the Reichstag as fast as humanly possible. And so they did, the new Chancellor of Germany and his freshly appointed Minister of Propaganda, their car hurtling through the city towards the Reichstag at top speeds. Goebbels watched the face of his leader from his seat next to him, who didn't seem panicked but poised and ready to respond to the moment. As he watched Hitler's face, it looked like it was starting to glow. Then he looked outside and realized where the glow was coming from. It was the Reichstag. The vast legislative building at the center of Berlin, a national monument equivalent to Parliament in London or the Capitol building in Washington. The Reichstag was engulfed in flames. The car pulled up to the blaze, and as they arrived, they could see the stout second-in-command of the Nazi party. Hermann Göring was already there, his obese silhouette flailing to and fro of the inferno. As they approached, they could hear him shouting at the top of his lungs, more animated than they had ever seen him before. Barking orders madly, furiously, Göring saw his leader and shouted, This is a communist crime against our new government! Then, grabbing the new, black-hooded head of the secret police by the collar, he shouted, This is the beginning of a communist revolution! We must not wait one minute! We will show no mercy! Every communist official must be shot where he stands! Every communist must, this very night, be strung up! Goring's fiery threats were not empty. And as the night went on, Goering used a new secret police detachment to begin a mass stream of arrests. All throughout Berlin, black-coated officers kicked down doors of communist officials, seized Communist Party offices, ordering them to be barred from entry or burned to the ground. A few hours later, Hitler called for an emergency cabinet meeting at the Chancellery to inform his cabinet of what had happened. It was there that the news came to Hitler that the culprit who started the fire had just been caught. He was a Dutch communist named van der Loeb, who had been spotted entering the Reichstag before the fire and running out of it as the fire began. He had confessed to the crime. After the cabinet meeting, Hitler hurried off with Goebbels to the press office to start dictating the lead stories for tomorrow's papers—the fire, the culprit, and the public condemnation of the Communist Party's shocking act of terrorism. But the most shocking act of the Reichstag fire was that it wasn't caused by the communists at all. You heard that right. Here's what really happened. Hitler's quest for power didn't end when he became chancellor. In fact, he was particularly limited in his power, since most of his cabinet were members from opposing parties. They were non-Nazis. This was by design, to declaw Hitler and to keep him in check. It was a condition of him being named Chancellor, remember? To make things even more difficult for Hitler, the Nazi party still did not have the majority in the Reichstag that it would need in order to make the changes to the constitution that Hitler wanted. Changes that would allow Hitler to get the true power he desired. And on the day Hitler took office, the other populist movement in Germany, communism, was as vocal as ever. Churning out millions of pages of newspapers every day to counter the Nazi media narrative. It's important to remember, Hitler's objective was never to be a Chancellor of the German Republic. It was to rule Germany completely. No distributed power, no checks and balances, no civil rights or freedom to protest against him. Democracy was an obstacle to Hitler's vision of Germany, one that needed to be removed. He needed to find a way to get a true majority in the Reichstag so that he could start changing laws and empowering himself. And so, shortly after he was appointed chancellor, he made an extremely risky move He dissolved the Reichstag again and called for another election. Remember, the Nazis lost seats in the last election. Hitler couldn't lose any more seats. He needed to win hundreds more. And so everyone was shocked that just days after he took power, he pushed all of his chips into the pot, risking it all again. But what the public didn't know was that Hitler was playing with a wild card. Because the Reichstag fire wasn't caused by the communists. It was caused by Hitler. The Reichstag fire was entirely orchestrated by the Nazis themselves. On the night of the fire, a small detachment of S.A. stormtroopers snuck into the Reichstag through an underground heating duct. There, they poured gasoline throughout the building and set it aflame. They then rushed out the same way they came, unseen by anyone. It's believed that Goebbels came up with the original plan, and Göring assembled a list of people who would be named responsible. All political opponents and personal vendettas. As for the supposed culprit, the Dutch communist van der Lubbe who had been arrested overnight, whose name was now plastered across every newspaper in Germany? He was the only part of the Reichstag fire, That the nazis didn't plan two days before the fire by pure coincidence the dutch communist van der lubbe who was described by those who knew him as dim-witted was overheard at a bar by sa troopers bragging that one day he would set the reichstag on fire he was then arrested but then mysteriously released he was then encouraged by undercover sa officers to go do it burn the Reichstag. And so, on that fateful February night, with a close eye on him, the Dutch communist quietly entered the Reichstag and set a small fire, using as kindling only the shirt he was wearing. All while Nazi stormtroopers entered the building from the other side and started the real fire, using gasoline. The next morning, Germans all over the country were in shock. Berliners were furious and scared at the act of terrorism, and the cowardly communists that all of the newspapers were saying were responsible. Then, Hitler made his move. He asked the aging President Hindenburg permission to declare a state of emergency and to suspend seven articles of the Constitution— the ones that protected personal liberties like freedom of speech and protections of property and home searches. It effectively gave Hitler control of the entire federal government under martial law. Hindenburg, in the light of the terrorist attack, reluctantly granted these suspensions so that the investigations could continue unhindered, the conspirators brought to justice, and order could be restored. What followed was the first time the German people experienced Nazi terror. Day after day, night after night, the Nazis were out for blood. The SA and the newly formed secret police detachment, the black-coated SS, would storm through the cities and towns, break into homes, make thousands of arrests, The German Communist Party leader, believing that the rules were still being applied, turned himself in, claiming that he had nothing to hide. Other Communist Party officials were arrested and party offices raided. Remember, we're in the middle of an election season. Every political party had campaign rallies and speeches, and the SA just broke all of them up, claiming that they were disturbances to the peace. By the days leading up to the election, only Nazi campaign rallies were allowed to take place. As for the campaign itself, it was the new propaganda minister, Goebbels' time to shine. He wrote in his diary, Now it will be easy, for we are able to use all of the resources of the state Radio and press are at our disposal. Even money is not an issue this time. We shall achieve a masterpiece of propaganda. Rallies of hundreds of thousands by day. Porchlight parades by night. Posters on every wall. Towering billboards soaring high into the air. Swastika flags lining every street. Every radio in Germany singing the praises of the brave Nazi party who would stop at nothing to protect its citizens from the communist terror. And for the finale... Goebbels orchestrated a grand public gesture by Hitler to the aging President Hindenburg. Held at the mythical Potsdam Garrison Church, once seen as the centerpiece of the Prussian Kingdom where Frederick the Great himself was buried, Goebbels arranged for a majestic celebration of President Hindenburg. Not just Hindenburg the President, but Hindenburg the Field Marshal, Hindenburg the War Hero, Hindenburg the father, prepared to anoint his successor. And at the climax of the ceremony, Hitler, in a plain black civilian suit, humbly approached the imposing Hindenburg, who was dressed in full Prussian military regalia, medals glistening across the old field marshal's chest, shoulder to shoulder. Then Hindenburg reached out his hand, and Hitler solemnly bowing his head, took it. Trumpets blared. Guns fired off, salvos in salute. The two men, Hitler and Hindenburg, linked at the arms. The only thing louder than the guns were the clicking cameras that Goebbels placed around the ceremony, capturing this historical moment of the passing of the torch, linking the old grandeur to the new power. The Reichstag fire and the propaganda campaign that followed was enough to scare the living daylights out of the entire German electorate and eliminate any doubt as to who would be the one to save the country. And it worked. The results of the election at last gave the Nazi coalition a majority in the Reichstag. And with the new alliance with Hindenburg's party, Hitler now had the two thirds of the vote he would need to make a special amendment to the Constitution. The Enabling Act. A complete transformation of the German Constitution that would give Hitler unprecedented power. It took all power to make laws away from the Reichstag, away from the democratically elected representatives, and handed it to Hitler alone. a period of four years. It would be like taking the powers of making laws away from Congress and giving it solely to the President. To put it bluntly, it would put an end to democracy. And now, because of the orchestrated terror and the state-sponsored deception, Hitler had enough votes to do it. On March 23, 1933, at the Kroll Opera House where the Reichstag was now meeting, The S.A. stormtroopers lining the aisles, the Enabling Act passed. The Reichstag members voted to end their own powers, signing all governing and lawmaking power to the Chancellor, to Hitler. There was a thunderous cheer that broke out from the Nazi members and the Nazi troopers that were watching. Together, they broke into the Horst vessel song. So the song carried in the Opera House, and with it, an end to representative democracy in Germany. The last day of democracy was not met with resistance, but with song. From that day forth, Germany was a dictatorship. Hitler was able to make laws and enforce them entirely on his own, President Hindenburg still had the power to revoke authority from Hitler. But Hindenburg was so pleased that order was finally being restored in government, that the days of bickering and stagnant politics were now over, the ends in his aging mind justified the means. After the government fell, the rest of the power structures in Germany began to fall with it. Much like the government itself, these so-called institutions fell with alarming speed. And without a lot of effort, Hitler was consolidating power. The first of these remaining power structures were local state governments. Much like the United States, the German Republic was made of several states which maintained their own local governments. One of the first acts of Hitler's new dictatorship was to replace these state governors with what were called Reich governors. The purpose was not to serve its constituents, but rather to carry out the central government's agenda. All powers of individual states were abolished. State governments were now simply local executors of the federal government's will. Second on the chopping block were political parties. Well, all political parties except the Nazi party, of course. After the Reichstag fire, the Communist Party were outlawed completely. The Social Democratic Party, the only party that voted against Hitler's enabling act, were the next offices to be raided. Their members either joined the Nazis out of fear or would be arrested. After that, all other parties followed. Even the other nationalist parties, who were already voting with Hitler, voluntarily dissolved themselves into the Nazi Party. Within a few short months of the Enabling Act, it had become a crime to belong to a political party other than the Nazis, punishable by a prison sentence. The third and last major opposition bloc were the unions. Hitler and Goebbels had a special plan for them. May 1st, or May Day, is a European holiday to honor the worker. On this day, Goebbels organized a celebration of the German worker in a large parade. Hitler even gave a speech to honor and respect the worker. That night, after the celebrations, Goebbels wrote in his diary about what would happen tomorrow. On May 2nd, the houses belonging to the trade unions will be seized. There will be little resistance. We do the workman a service by freeing him of his parasitical leadership. Leadership which has, up until now, made life hard for him. Once the trade unions are in our hands, the other organizations will follow. There is no going back from it. Events must now take their course. And so they did. S.A. troopers went from house to house, taking union leaders into protective custody. Even after union leaders declared loyalty to Hitler, they were arrested anyway. The government enacted a new law that abolished collective bargaining and made strikes illegal. With all of the major power structures in Germany collapsed, the new government began to turn their focus onto the so-called enemy that had always been a central part of the Nazi platform, the Jewish people. In that first year of Nazi rule, Hitler began putting into law the radical, anti-Semitic ideals that he had preached on the campaign trail for years. Not all at once, but with slow and purposeful acts that, over time, would lead to the most unspeakable genocide in history. In that first wave of laws, Jewish people were banned from serving in public office, from teaching at universities. The practice of kosher was forbidden. In April of that first year, a one-day national boycott was enacted on all Jewish businesses. In the following year, Jews would be banned from practicing medicine, dentistry, and military service. This was only the beginning of a slow boil, but it became more apparent that persecuting the Jewish people were more than just campaign rhetoric, not to be taken literally. They were real policy objectives. After only a few months in power, it was one of the first things Hitler did. After the boycott of Jewish businesses in April, the foreign press began to take notice. This was an unprecedented, government-funded action against an ethnic group that sent ripples through Europe. Many spoke out. Not nearly enough did. After reading the news coming in from England and France, denouncing the boycott, Goebbels wrote with giddy excitement in his diary. The proclamation of the boycott already makes the whole clan tremble in their shoes. The Jewish press is whimpering with alarm and fear. A beautiful spring smiles over Germany. In the end, the world will learn to understand us. By the beginning of next year, in January 1934, at the end of Hitler's first year as Chancellor, Hitler had secured Germany under his control. There was only one loose end left, and his name was Ernst Röhm. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Michael. Thank you for listening to How to Start a War. If the story so far has been meaningful to you, please share it with someone else. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. And thanks again. Now, back to the story. Something had to be done about him. Hitler's private army, the S.A., which had grown to over two and a half million men, had been instrumental not only in Hitler's rise to power, but also in his terrifying and swift consolidation of power, whether it was by fighting communists in the streets or breaking up political parties' events, raiding press offices, making arrests, even starting the Reichstag fire. But the terror in the streets of Germany at the hands of the S.A. were now getting out of control. Average citizens were now in fear of their lives. But it wasn't just a safety concern. There was something else. Something much bigger. At every level of the S.A., from the stormtrooper on the street to its commander, Ernst Röhm, sitting in the chancellor's cabinet, there was talk of what became known as a second revolution. What is a second revolution? Well, it had nothing to do with overthrowing Hitler. On the contrary, the SA saw the Second Revolution as a natural progression of the Nazi takeover. See, they got the idea from the French Revolution. Back in those days, where there was an urgent need for a large number of soldiers to defend France, they didn't call them a professional army, which got its leaders from the elite class but on all of the citizens of France to be conscripted into a revolutionary army, thus upending a powerful elite class and creating a larger, more equalized military class. Rome saw the SA as Germany's revolution, and on an almost daily basis, he demanded that Hitler allow the SA to be absorbed into the German military and place the entire German army under Rome's command. This Hitler would not allow. Why not? Three important reasons. First, Hitler did not see the SA as a military force, but as a political tool. Second, you know who really hated the idea of Rome and his undisciplined band of murderous street brawlers being put in charge of the army? The generals who commanded the army. And for all of the SA's might in the streets, The proper German military was still a powerful institution, far more than the SA, and one that Hitler still needed on his side. President Hindenburg would not be around forever, and when he died, he would need the support of the military to retain control. And third, Rome's own behavior, according to Hitler, was becoming troublesome. In his quest to make the SA into a true fighting force, he began purchasing larger and larger arms, from heavy machine guns to trucks. And the more the SA started to look like an actual military, the more that France, Britain, and the League of Nations would take notice and demand answers to what could only be described as arming a German fighting force, something that was strictly forbidden. There were other Less logical reasons for the German military to disapprove of Röhm and the S.A.'s behavior. Rumors were beginning to spread that Ernst Röhm was gay. Indeed, that many of the S.A. leadership were gay, and took part in what the ultra-conservative generals called dubious escapades. One of the generals was quoted saying, Rearmament is too difficult of a business to be handled by percolators, drunkards, and homosexuals. As the winter of 1934 became the spring, the tensions between the army and the SA only grew worse. Defense Minister Blomberg and Commando Rome got into several heated exchanges and cabinet meetings, and Rome even published an op-ed on the SA making his demands public that it should be transformed into the People's Army. Hitler couldn't lose the support of the army, and so he called for a secret meeting with the generals to make a deal. It looked something like this. Hitler promised to curb the SA and reduce their power permanently. In exchange, Hitler asked for their support in absorbing the power of the president to himself after the aging President Hindenburg died essentially making him a supreme dictator with literally no one to answer to. The military command, in a decision that would seal its own fate, agreed. All that was left now was for Hitler to make good on his promise. In preparation for this, he began to empower one of his up-and-comers, a man who could potentially replace Rome. This rising star was a very dark man. But he hit it well. From the outside, he was unassuming. He was a former chicken farmer who had excelled so quickly through the ranks, showing a particular skill in investigation and discipline of his men, he was put in charge of the SA's new secret police and investigative force. Sort of like the Secret Service, the FBI, and the CIA all rolled into one. They didn't wear the traditional brown uniforms like the S.A. Troopers. Instead, they wore all black to distinguish themselves. They weren't rowdy. They were disciplined, quiet, sharp, and deadly. This detachment had a special name, the S.S. This unassuming man who led the S.S. was Heinrich Himmler, a man who had later become the architect of the Holocaust. Hitler told Himmler to secretly grow and train the SS for special operations that would be coming soon. It was starting to become obvious that the military and the SS were growing in Hitler's favor, while the SA was falling out of it. Even Göring, Hitler's number two man, switched his symbolic uniform, the one he wore in public events, from a brown SA uniform to a proper German military uniform. Together, Göring and Himmler built up the secret police force to be ready to move on Rome when the time was right. But week after week, the SA public displays of violence continued. With no more communists to fight with, the SA troopers would make their own chaos, binge-drinking, attacking civilians that passed by, then attacking the police who were brought in to stop them. Talks of the Second Revolution weren't going away either. And as the month of June came, Hitler made a public reproach of the S.A. An announcement that the S.A. were ordered to take the month of July off, in which time they would not be allowed to wear uniforms or march in the streets. Rome was forced to obey, but made a public statement of his own, saying that if anyone thought the S.A. would not return from its leave, they were mistaken. This public back-and-forth and disorganization was enough for President Hindenburg. Hitler was summoned by the president who, even though seemed to be nearing the end of his life, understood just how bad things were getting, and would make Hitler the only type of offer he could understand, one that threatened his power. When Hitler arrived at President Hindenburg's residence, he was met by his defense minister, General Blomberg. His usual friendly attitude was replaced by a stern, cold shoulder. Blomberg informed Hitler, in no uncertain terms, that the president had issued a firm ultimatum. Either he immediately do something about the SA, or the president would declare a state of martial law, revoking all powers from the chancellery and place it in the hands of the military. Hitler then saw the president himself, who confirmed this ultimatum. This meeting showed that, even after all of the consolidation to this point, just how precarious Hitler's power truly was. Not only was his succession to Hindenburg now in jeopardy, but the entire government—everything that he had built to obtain power—was now at risk, due to the reckless actions of Rome, and Hitler's own inability to reel him in. When Hitler returned to Berlin, he finally seemed to understand the gravity of the situation and what needed to be done about it. He would need to uphold his promise to the army. But how harsh did he need to be on his closest friend? Could he just fire him from his position and reform the SA? Would he need to disband the SA entirely? Would the SA do what they were told without their fearless leader Rome at the helm? But Hitler seemed to be the only person who was unsure of how to proceed. Goring and Himmler seemed to know exactly what needed to be done, and drew up a list of the people who would need to be arrested. Then, the two men began to fabricate so-called evidence that Rome and the S.A. were planning a coup against Hitler. At the end of June, Defense Minister Blumberg published an article in the Nazi paper titled The Army Stands Behind Hitler, Who Remains One of Ours. All of this was setting the stage for Hitler to give the final order and put an end to the S.A. power struggle once and for all. The next day, Hitler gave the order to carry out what would later become known as the Night of Long Knives. Which leads us back to the Hanselbauer Hotel in the Bavarian Alps. The SA officers waited silently outside for Hitler to emerge from Rum's hotel room. Then, the door opened. Hitler came out of the room by himself and closed the door behind him again. He walked back down the stairs, past the SA officers who were all kneeling on the ground, half-dressed, pleading, crying at their leader, declaring their loyalty, begging for their lives. Hitler stopped. And said something to the ss officer then walked back towards his car as he walked away he could hear the screams by the sa officers grow louder to a crescendo then he heard nothing but the quiet mountain air From the hotel, the SS went to the train station, where more SA officers were arriving to the scheduled meeting. As the SA members stepped off the trains, they were met by the black-coated SS, who arrested them on the spot. All day and into the night, Himmler and Goring orchestrated a mass roundup, SA troopers were arrested, dozens of them at a time, would be brought to central locations like public buildings and schools, lined up against a wall, begging for their lives, and shot by firing squad. That night, the SA commander who started the Reichstag fire was about to board a ship with his wife for their honeymoon. Instead, he was arrested before he could board, flown back to Berlin, and executed. Hitler's old number two man of the Nazi party was also arrested and shot. The SS even stormed the Vice-Chancellor's office in Berlin, where Vice-Chancellor Pappen worked. Broke into his office, shot his secretary in the head, then arrested the Vice-Chancellor, all while he shouted at the officers that they could not arrest him. The scheming Kurt von Schleicher, the man who was Chancellor just before Hitler, received a knock on his door from two SS officers. He came to the door, opened it, and was shot in the head. When his wife rushed over to help him, screaming, she was shot too. Gustav von Kahr, the former governor of Bavaria, the man who Hitler took hostage, then suppressed the Beer Hall coup a decade ago, was arrested at his home, driven out into the woods, and hacked to death with a pickaxe. As for Hitler's dear friend Ernst Röhm, The man who had stood by Hitler from the very beginning, who had dedicated his entire life to Hitler and the S.A., a A man who was the only one of Hitler's circle who addressed him not as the Fuhrer, but as Adolf, was not executed outside of the Hönzbauer Hotel like his men were. Instead, he was arrested and taken to Munich, where he was held in the exact same jail that Hitler and Rome shared the night after their failed Beer Hall coup. After being held in a cell for several days, Hitler, in what he considered an act of mercy, ordered the SS officers to place a gun in his cell to allow Rome to end his own life. The officer placed a pistol with one bullet in Rome's cell and walked out. The guards waited for a shot. Ten minutes went by. Of silence then they heard a shout from Rome's cell if I am to be killed let Adolf do it himself the officers returned to the cell where they saw Rome standing defiantly he had taken off his shirt puffed out his chest standing up straight breathing heavily looking right into the eyes of the officers He opened his mouth to say something, but the officers hushed him. Then, they shot him. (laughs) The imposing, brawling commander of the S.A., Hitler's fierce attack dog, Hitler's closest friend, was dead. After all of the killing was over, Hitler gave a speech condemning the so-called treason of the S.A., and did much to play up Rome's homosexuality as a crime in the aftermath of his death. Hitler claimed that he was shocked to find out that the S.A. leader was gay. President Hindenburg, rather than condemning the horrific act of mass execution, actually thanked Hitler for his speedy and brave actions to put down a rebellion. The S.S. were made independent from the S.A., and Hitler appointed Himmler as its official leader, who would report directly to him. The army, who had pressured Hitler into taking action against the SA, were pleased by the result. Defense Minister Blomberg put out a public statement supporting the executions, and expressed their satisfaction with the outcome. Hitler had held up his end of the bargain, and now would have the full support of the military in whatever happened next. On August 2nd, 1934, only a month after the Night of Long Knives, President Hindenburg died at age 87. And true to their word, Blomberg and the army supported Hitler absorbing the powers of the president into his own. A national vote was called on whether to support Hitler taking power of the presidency. The official result was a victory for Hitler with 90% of the votes. Factor three on how to start a war is consolidation of power. Hitler needed to conquer Germany before he conquered Europe. Given the risks in starting a war, starting one is always controversial and many people with power stand to lose from it. But if these people with power can stand to gain from it, or at least think they will, they can be persuaded to support it. Those who cannot be convinced are often eliminated. The Reichstag, the legislative branch of the German government, was one of these powers that were persuaded. And because its members were elected by the people, Hitler used state-sponsored terrorism with the Reichstag fire to scare the electorate into making a decision. The military and the powerful military class was another that stood to gain much from Hitler in power, and were persuaded as well. Hitler, who seemed to be the only chancellor that was bold enough to speak publicly of Germany's desire to rebuild its army once again, and take concrete steps to make that happen. It is often said by historians and political theorists that, in an internal power struggle, one must always look to who the military is backing in order to pick the winner. As for those who could not be persuaded, the opposition parties, the SA, and its leader Ernst Röhm, they were, as we've learned, eliminated. Let me say that a different way. Brutally murdered. The next time you hear the phrase, so-and-so leader is consolidating power, look at their track record and think hard about what that could actually mean. Adolf Hitler was now the head of the government, the head of state, and commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He was an absolute dictator with no check of any kind. Hitler's ascension to supreme leader sent a chill not only through Europe, but throughout the rest of the world. And for the first time, Hitler's eyes began to turn beyond his borders. How to Start a War is written and produced by me. I'm Michael Trapani. Thanks for listening.